While the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had ceased speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great shoal of fish, and as their nets were breaking, they beckoned to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for henceforth you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Last week, Marsha and I had a good time watching the um, NFL draft. I was anxious to see if Kyler Murray, quarterback from the University of Oklahoma, was going to be drafted number one, as was rumored by so many people. You know, I enjoy watching the draft, though, not because of trying to see which team is going to get which player, because I honestly find there's so many players I do not know. What we enjoy about watching the draft together is you get all these little vignettes, all these things about a person's life. You begin to learn where they came from, how they got there, what were their struggles. They become human. And you watch these little vignettes, and then when they get their name called, I mean, some jump up and they're high-fiving. Other people are just sobbing and they're crying. It's interesting to be able to watch these people as just humans having something happen in their life that is probably going to change their life forever. So we enjoyed watching that. And if you're a football fan, you know Kyler Murray did get drafted, chosen number one um, by the Arizona Cardinals. But I want to ask you today to see if you're really a football fan. Can you tell me who was chosen number 254? Who was the last person chosen in the draft? We know who was number one. Can you tell me number 254? It was Caleb Wilson. Caleb Wilson was graduating from UCLA. He was a tight end. And he was chosen by the Arizona Cardinals. They actually had the first and the last draft. And they chose a quarterback, and they chose a tight end. And I really hope this next year to get to see Kyler Murray throwing passes to Caleb Wilson. What a neat thing that would be. Number one and number 254, the last person chosen in the draft. 
Now, if you get chosen last, number 254 in the draft, you also win a title. You win an honor. It's called Mr. Irrelevant. They've been doing this for 44 years. For 44 years, whoever's chosen last in the draft is named Mr. Irrelevant. And there is a week in June where it's a celebration of you. There is a parade where you're riding in a convertible. They have big banquets. They're going to give you a trophy. It looks like it's the Heisman, but you're dropping the ball. No, they're going to tease you a lot and they're going to really roast you and and honor you. And it's really a a good time if you can laugh at yourself and and have a, a good week about it. Well, in order to make this presentation, they brought out Ryan Suckup. Now, some of you will recognize that name of Ryan Suckup. This was the draft this year was held in Nashville, Tennessee. And it's the Tennessee Titans who play there. And their field goal kicker is Ryan Suckup. It was back in 2009 that Ryan was the last person taken in the draft. In 2009, he was Mr. Irrelevant. And so they brought him out on stage to help make this presentation. And I can tell you, Ryan and his wife, well, they're people of great faith. They They are wonderful people involved in the community, wanting to bless life. And he came out and he said, you know, if you're somebody, because they hadn't announced the name yet, if you're somebody who can laugh at yourself and have fun, it's a great week. I mean, you got to think about it. Nine, ten years ago when I won, well, I mean, I was a field goal kicker. And my last name is Suckup. He said, I gave them lots of material to work on me. But what you also need to know, the reason they brought him out is, it's been ten years and he's still playing in the NFL. He played with the Kansas City Chiefs and then finally got the opportunity to go to the Tennessee Titans where he signed a five-year, $20 million contract. No, there's something important about being able to say that it's rather irrelevant where you're taken in the draft. All that matters is you were chosen. I think of Peter and Andrew and James, and John. In our scripture lesson, we start reading about them, and we think, these are fishermen. They aren't the brightest. They aren't the most powerful. They're not the wealthiest. They're not the most connected. But all of that is kind of irrelevant because they are chosen. Chosen by Christ to be His disciples. Confirmands, what I want to say to you today is you may not be the smartest. You may not be the most popular. You may not be the most connected. You may not think you're the most handsome or beautiful. Let me tell you something. That's irrelevant. What matters is you are chosen. You are chosen by Christ. And that changes your life And God can use you to change the world. That's why I love this story so much. It's the story of how Jesus had started his ministry up in Galilee. He's there on the Sea of Galilee, also known as Lake Gennesaret. 
the Sea of Galilee. And so he is there and he's been teaching and preaching, getting to know people. Peter and Andrew, James, John, they've heard about him. But that day he comes and he comes down on the beach and because he's starting to gain some fame, lots of people start pressing in. And he sees how Peter has been fishing all night long. They've not caught anything. They're cleaning their nets. And Jesus said, can I get in your boat and can we push out from the shore a little bit? Now, that was a very practical thing to do. It let people get as close as they could all along the seashore. And, of course, it slopes up. And then if the lake is still, when you get in the boat and you speak, it bounces off of the lake. It's a sounding board. It's like a microphone. And more people can hear. And so he gets in the boat and Peter pushes out. And Jesus is now talking to all these people about the kingdom of God. What does it mean? to really live in a radical new way, different than how they've been living. And he gives this vision of what it could be. And Peter is sitting there at his feet, literally in this boat, listening. And man, something stirs in his heart. So much so they get through and Jesus says, why don't we push out and would you cast the net off the right side of your boat? And Peter said, we've been fishing all night long. We've caught nothing. But at your word, we will do it. Jesus said, push out into the deep water. Now, again, this was a practical thing. You don't catch fish in shallow water. You got to get out in deep water. But scholars say this really was symbolic because he's saying to Peter and the disciples, we got to get out of shallow water where it feels good. If you fall out of the boat, you stand up. Not a big deal. We got to get out in deep water where you risk, where there can be storms. It can get scary. we got to go out into the deep water if you really want to make a fish, catch a fish, make a life. And so they go out into the deep water. They throw the nets over the side, and suddenly it says they're catching so many fish that the boat begins to sink. Now that's a fish story. I mean, I love that. If you are a fisherman, how many times have you ever caught so many fish you start to sink the boat? No, again, it's supposed to be symbolic that says when Christ is with you, there is an abundance, more than you could ever need, enough to sink the boat. And so now realizing this is happening, you know, Peter looks at all this and he doesn't suddenly say, whoa, that's cool. Now, Peter says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. I get that. To think that Almighty God is drawing near and inviting you out into deep water to risk, to grow, to take a chance, and you sense the power of what can happen, and it sure is easy to feel, I'm not good enough. I'm a sinful man. I'll make mistakes. I I won't do it right. I'm not perfect. Depart from me, Lord. I don't think I'm up for this. It was a scary moment for Peter and all the disciples. And Jesus would say, don't be afraid. For I'm going to help you be fishing for men. What a powerful moment to realize You have been chosen to go out into the deep, 
to risk. You know, today is our 130th anniversary celebration, and I think it's such an important day. Because when you and I come together today, we come to remember how St. Luke's came into being, but Oklahoma City. And St. Luke's has been a significant part of this city now for 130 years, and I think it's because of the way we came together. It was on April the 22nd, 1889, 50,000 people lined up at the state borders waiting for noon when they shot the gun and we begin to race across the prairies. Two million acres were up for homesteading. The Army Corps of Engineers had already come and laid out the streets in downtown Oklahoma City so people could homestead them. That morning of April 22nd, we had zero population. At sundown, we had 10,000. Now that matters. That's significant. And so people all showed up. But don't ever forget, this was hard. This wasn't easy. You had to eat. You had to have something to drink. You needed a roof over your head. These were people on the frontier, pioneers. Talk about getting out there in the deep. That was the beginning of Oklahoma City. First three days is great weather. Then the spring rains came. And everything turned to mud. And it was so hard. Everybody wanted to build a platform, get up out of the mud, get something over your head. You could have understood if they worked day after day after day trying to get a foothold and get started. But not everybody did. When it came to that Sunday, April 28, six days later, April 28, 1889, there were two groups who got together and said, we're going to stop working today in spite of all we need to do to worship. And that was the Presbyterians and the Methodist. The Presbyterians decided to meet at Main and Broadway. That was kind of the center of this new town. Most was happening south of Main. The Methodists decided to get out of town and we went to third and Broadway. We had a little hill we could kind of go up on and we staked a white flag because there were no street signs. We staked a white flag to say, this is where you come. We played a trumpet. W.P. Shaw was a minister in the, Method, uh, the Methodist Episcopal Church South. And he was there and he led the singing in What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Go back and read the words and think about the people now living here out on the frontier, and why they would choose what a friend we have in Jesus. And then he led them in the singing of Amazing Grace. And then Reverend Burrow of the Methodist Church North preached the sermon. And then when they came to the end, W.P. Shaw led us in the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. This was supposed to be a service of thanksgiving, thankful for a new opportunity, but also one of, oh God, be the foundation that leads us out into deep water to find a new life, to risk. You know, that's who we have always been at this church. People who are willing to follow God into new dreams and to risk and to grow. You know, one of our favorite questions that I ask over and over again for 28 years is when was the last time you did something for the first time. Because if you can't remember the last time you did something for the first time, you're probably not listening to God. 
Because I guarantee you, God is going to be calling you to experience new things and to learn and to grow all the days of your life. What does it mean to put out into deep water, to follow, to be willing to risk? Confirmands, that's what today is about. Making a commitment for the kind of life you're going to live. And for all of us, it's remembering the commitment we have made to be those who are willing to put out into deep water, to risk, to grow, to follow Christ into an uncertain future. Not always easy. It's really what I want us to think about this morning. As I begin a new sermon series, I've been thinking about this for a while, and I decided this sermon series I wanted to entitle, Someday is Not a Day of the Week. There's Sunday, and there's Monday. And there's Tuesday, and there's Wednesday, and there's Thursday, and there's Friday, and there's Saturday, and there's someday. It's not a day of the week, but a lot of people live for someday. That day when finally I'm going to pursue my dreams. I'm finally going to let God call my life. I'm finally going to move forward in some way. Someday. It's not a day of the week. The day of the week is today. Confirmands. Today, you make your commitment that makes your life different forever. I want us to think about that this morning. And as I look at our scripture, there's really just two things that I want to say. First of all, the very last verse in the scripture I, I really like when it says, and they left everything and followed him. Now, when you and I think about leaving everything in order to follow Christ, what we think about for them is the boats, the nets, their home, maybe their family. And those were practical things, but there was something else they had to leave behind. And it was a lot of the things they were taught to believe as children and all of their lives. They would have to leave behind a lot of the things that had made them comfortable and the things they believed. Because Jesus was about to say to them, I'm asking you to love the Samaritans the people you've been told to hate all of your life. I'm asking you to treat women with respect and treat them as equals. And you've been taught not to even speak to them. I'm going to ask you to love Gentiles. That means Romans and and the Greeks, the people that they've been taught not to associate with, you can't eat with. No, Jesus was going to ask them to begin a journey of learning how to love for the rest of their life in a radical way. You're going to have to leave some things behind. Somebody asked Jesus, so what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And a good lawyer said, and so who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, there was this Jew going down the road and he got jumped by bandits and they beat and almost killed him. They left him on the side of the road and along came a Jew who went by and and then along came a priest who went by and then along came a Samaritan. You know those people you hate? And he got off his donkey and he bound up his wounds and put him on his donkey and took him to an inn and paid the innkeeper to take care of him. Who do you think was the neighbor? The one who showed mercy. Ah, Jesus said, go, do likewise. 
to love the Samaritan, my neighbor? I, I love the story that Jesus told about a father who had a son, and the son came to him and said, I want my share of the inheritance. Father wasn't dead yet. And he took his inheritance and he went into a faraway country and spent it and made a mess of his life, was starving to death, wanted to come back home and knew he needed to be punished and maybe just be a slave. And when he headed home, his father saw him at a distance and he ran out and threw his arms around him and said, my son who was dead is alive. And Jesus was trying to teach us a story about how does God love us, his children? And now how does he ask us to love one another? And I just have to tell you, as a pastor, as your pastor, what I have done for all these years in my ministry, I've tried to look at what I think are the three fundamental teachings of Jesus and the greatest commandment, the good Samaritan and the prodigal son. And when I look at the Old Testament or I look at Hebrew scriptures or the New Testament, there are many things that stand in tension or conflict with one another. And I always like to ask, does it square with what I believe is the fundamental teachings of Jesus? To love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. To understand the good Samaritan and the prodigal son. And then I believe that tries to teach us how to live and how to grow in love with one another. Because learning how to love is not an easy thing. It may mean you have to leave some things behind in order to love as Christ has called us to love. It is not always an easy thing, but that has been the spirit of this church. Back in 1889, whenever people moved to town, Reverend Shaw, he was there to invite people to church. Didn't matter who it was. He always showed up to help people unload their wagon into the house. Now, I didn't tell you that Reverend Shaw stood six foot seven. In 1889, most people were five foot to five foot six. He stood six foot seven. He could play for the Thunder basketball team. He was this enormous guy, strong. He'd show up, he'd help unload the wagon. He could do that. And then he invited you to come to church. And it's amazing how many came. Don't know if it's because they were invited or they were intimidated, but they came. Or there was... Susie Ray, who talks about how in the late 1800s, she came to Oklahoma City. She was moving into her home, and along came a group of ladies. They came in their wagon. They got off in their long dresses, holding them up to keep them out of the mud to go into the house. And they got in and said, Miss Ray, we understand you're a Methodist, and we want to invite you to church. And Susie thought, how do they know that I'm Methodist? She actually was. And she said, well, you're right. I am a Democrat and I am a Methodist. But my husband is a Republican and a Baptist. And they said, that's okay. He can come too. And both of them did come on Sunday and join. Because one of the spirits of this church from the very beginning was it doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat or Methodist or Baptist or Catholic or Lutheran or Presbyterian we know nobody has all the truth. We're all trying to figure out how to love one another as the children of God. And we've kind of moved past all that denomination struggle. And But that's why in these last few decades we focused on what does it mean for you and I to take a lead in this city on how do we love our Jewish brothers and sisters. 
How do we learn to love our Muslim brothers and sisters? To be able to say we are different and yet we're all God's children. Are there things we need to leave behind and to learn to love? And it's because you and I try to do that that, you know, when I hear these things in the news about a shooting, it just, it moves me to tears. I may not know anyone, but it should affect us personally. When we hear about a shooting in a synagogue in California, and the person who's a shooter is someone who goes to church every Sunday and says they really feel like this is what God wants them to do, or you hear about a shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh at the Tree of Life, or you hear about a shooting at a mosque in Christ Church in New Zealand, or you hear about a shooting at a a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida, or you hear about a shooting at an African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, Whenever we hear that, it should move us to tears. Because we know we're all on a journey of what does it mean to learn to love people who are different from us. And that isn't always easy. But we stand against hate. To decide to get out into deep water and to follow Christ is to make the commitment you're going to spend a lifetime of trying to learn how to love. And that isn't always easy but it's what makes all the difference in the world. And so secondly, I understand why Peter said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Scared you to death to think, you're asking me to do what? And so it was, Jesus said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'll make you fishers of men. To think about how they responded. They left behind and they went with Jesus to learn how to love in a radical way and do new things. For three years they're learning and then Jesus gets crucified and that night they all run away. And Peter even verbally says, I've never known him. You can understand how they would feel so broken. Talk about feeling irrelevant. Here they've worked so hard and all that they've done, it doesn't matter. They're irrelevant. And then after the night of that crucifixion and then the resurrection, we looked at that story in John, one of the very last stories in the the Gospels. And it's the story of how the disciples have gone fishing all night long and they've caught nothing. I hope that sounds familiar. They've caught nothing and they're out there fishing all night long and there's a person on the beach and says, cast out your net on the right side. And they cast out their net and suddenly they think the nets are going to break. They're catching so many. It ought to be going off in your head. It went off in Peter and John's head. We've been here before. And it's finally John who says, it's the Lord. And Peter jumps in the water and swims to the shore. And he gets to the shore and Jesus is cooking breakfast on the beach. And he really says to all of them, do you love me? You know that we love you, Lord. Then feed my sheep. The whole story begins with a night of fishing when they make this incredible catch and they're so afraid and it ends with a night of fishing after they have failed and being told, you're still loved, you can go try again. The disciples had a call. 
They had a purpose. They had a mission to share God's love and bring hope to the world. And that doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Sometimes it means it's hard because you're learning how to love. And sometimes you make mistakes and fail, but you keep on trying. You don't quit because you have a calling. You have a purpose to share God's love and bring hope to the world. Confirmands, you've been called. You've been given a purpose. The purpose of sharing God's love, bringing hope to the world for the rest of your lives, wherever you are, whatever you do. As Marsha and I were watching the NFL draft, talking about everybody being chosen number one, and they were looking at Kyler Murray, and of course last year was Baker Mayfield. I got to thinking about someone else who was chosen number one in the NFL draft, and that was a man named Ernie Davis. He was chosen number one in the NFL draft in 1962. I don't know whether that name rings a bell for you or not. Ernie Davis was an amazing player. He was born in 1939 in Pittsburgh, grew up in a family of faith, good, strong, Christian, loving family, and he needed that support because he was African-American. And growing up black in the 1940s and 50s in the United States, that wasn't easy. If you have forgotten, you need to go back and read history to understand what what is it like to be a person of color in a time of such racism and segregation, persecution. It wasn't easy. But he was a man of incredible faith and somehow he lived in compassion and love in spite of all that came his way. He was very smart, made great grades in school. He was very strong, great athlete. He loved baseball, basketball, football. But it was in his junior year that he was playing football. And the thing about Ernie was, in spite of he had all these athletic abilities, his number one ability was he could run. I mean, this kid could run. And he was a junior in high school, third game of the season, and their halfback went down, and they had no one to play in the backfield. And it was the coach, the kids who came to the coach and said, put Ernie back there. He was playing defense. They said, why don't you put him back there? Let him run the ball. And so they did. They put him in. Next play, they handed off to Ernie, and he began leaping over guys and spinning around and dodging and weaving, and he ran 70 yards for a touchdown. And the coach said, That went pretty well. Why don't we let him catch the next kickoff? And so they put him back. He caught the next kickoff. He ran 90 yards for a touchdown. Ernie Davis' career was born. He excelled his junior year. He excelled his senior year. So much so that Ben Schwartz, who was the coach at Syracuse, came to recruit him to come to college there. Now, in the 1950s, the big schools did not recruit African-American students, and they certainly didn't give them scholarships. But Syracuse had just had a great running back, an African-American running back, a guy named Jim Brown. And Jim Brown went into the NFL, and he would win the rushing title eight out of nine years, something that has never been done before or after. And he had been at Syracuse. He saw Ernie. He told Ben, and the two of them went and recruited Ernie, and he agreed to come to Syracuse. There was 8,000 students and five black kids. It wasn't easy. But he was such a man of compassion and such kindness and character. He began to win them over. 
In his sophomore year, he was so good, he led the Orangemen, Syracuse, to an 11-0 record. And they were ranked number one in the NFL. I mean, in the college. And they got to go to the Cotton Bowl. And there in the Cotton Bowl, they played the number two team in the country, the Texas Longhorns. And Syracuse won. They won their only national championship in their history. And Ernie went on to these great junior year and senior year. And when he graduated senior year, Ernie Davis was the first African-American to win the Heisman Trophy. And in 1963, he was, two, he was then the first African-American to be drafted number one in the NFL. He was drafted by the Cleveland Browns. And the Cleveland Browns already had some one good guy in the backfield, and that was Jim Brown. And now they're going to have Jim Brown and Ernie Davis. Can you imagine how Baker Mayfield would feel <laughs> if he had those two guys in his backfield today? I mean, the whole city was abuzz. They knew this was going to be awesome. This was going to be incredible. Everybody was pumped. And when it came to spring training, though, Ernie didn't feel right. He felt a little weak. He didn't feel right. And he started going to the doctor and they started running tests. He was 22 years old and they discovered he had leukemia. It's the early 1960s. They didn't know a whole lot to do. They started trying to give him treatments, but he got weaker and weaker. It had been easy for Ernie to feel irrelevant. But he knew he was called to still love and to care and to be kind. He handled it with such grace. He started winning over the city, and they hadn't even started to play. When it came to the opening game of the season, they let him suit up, and he ran out onto the field, and the people stood and clapped and clapped and clapped. By May of 1963, Ernie Davis was dead. 23 years old. He never played it down in the NFL. As he got near death, they interviewed him. And I, I want to read you what Ernie had to say. I believe I've been hit, put here for a purpose. And that purpose is to bring hope and joy to people and to help inspire young people to be the best they can be. You know, I can't complain. I didn't complain when all the good things were happening to me. I can't complain when this is happening to me. No, I believe I was put here for a purpose. And when that purpose is done, I'm ready to go home. Confirmands, I believe you've been put here for a purpose. And what that purpose will be individually when you're in your 20s will probably be different in your 40s and when you're in your 80s. I don't know what that individual purpose will be, but I know there's one overarching purpose that every single one of us has, no matter how young or how old how strong or how weak, that is all irrelevant. Your purpose is to share God's love and to bring hope to the world. It'll change your life and God will use you to change the world because you have been chosen.
It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.